You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. something about, at least in passing, a passage which has inspired numerous pieces of art and literary references and even inspired the first episode of Veggie Tales, and this is the account of Daniel and the Lion's Den, the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel. Now, for most of us, this will be familiar ground, uh, but while most of us know this passage, we need to look at it with fresh eyes. This is not simply a story for kids uh, that we tell with uh, you know, felt board and, and little paper puppets. This is a passage that speaks powerfully to God's people across all generations, reminding us that this world is not our home, that in this world we will have troubles, and that through our troubles, our God is faithfully with us and He is for us. The Lord is our defense, our help, and our salvation. And that's what we're going to see today, that the Lord guards and the Lord delivers His people and that the Lord destroys those who seek to harm his own. And we're going to see that today in four points across Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. First today we're going to see that the presence of the Holy Spirit distinguishes the believing from the unbeliever. Second, we're going to see that the wicked enviously plot to destroy the righteous. Third, we're going to see how the righteous should respond to the plots of the wicked. And finally, we will see that the Lord delivers the persecuted righteous, and he destroys the persecuting wicked. Begin with our first point, which is that the Holy Spirit distinguishes between the believing and the unbelieving. You have a Bible turn to Daniel chapter 5, verse 31, and that's where we will begin today. We read... Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Last week in Daniel chapter 5, we saw a major transition in world history. The Babylonian Empire came to a sudden conclusion. That during a night of debauched partying, the Babylonian king Belshazzar terribly blasphemed the living God. And a mysterious hand immediately appeared on the banquet wall and wrote a message of doom, which Daniel interpreted declaring that Belshazzar's reign was over, that the kingdom was taken from him and it was being given to the Persians. And you'll remember that within a few hours, this declaration came to pass. On October the 12th, 539 B.C., the Persians entered Babylon, they killed Belshazzar, and they took control of the kingdom. And so as you pick up this morning, a new regime has come to power. New leaders have come to power over the world and over the exiled Jewish people and over Daniel. And chapter 5, verse 31 specifies that the man who took control of Babylon at this point was Darius the Mede. This is probably the single most contentious verse in the entire book of Daniel. Because this verse is a consistent target for the critics who want to challenge the historical reliability of the scriptures. Because no historical document has ever been found independently confirming the existence of a figure called Darius the Mede. And so the critics say, aha, the author of this book got it wrong. 
Now, this is just a fictional fellow. Are the critics right? Should these objections shake our confidence in the historical reliability of the Bible? Well, they should not, and I'll tell you why. First, remember that last week's passage was about Belshazzar. And I told you that until the 1850s, Belshazzar was unknown to history outside the book of Daniel. And many critics of the past at that time said, Belshazzar never lived, just like they say today about Darius the Mede. But in time, documents attesting the reality of Belshazzar were discovered. So Daniel chapter 5 has already been shown to have accurately described a long-forgotten, ancient, and obscure figure whose existence the biblical critics denied. So we have good reason to trust chapter 5 when it describes another such obscure figure from history, given that this chapter already has a good track record of accuracy in that department. But I would tell you even more broadly, the Bible talks about Darius the Mede and what it says broadly conforms to what we know about the history of the transition of power from Babylon to Persia. Let me start by saying a few words about the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were two tribes that lived in what is today Iran. For a long time, the Medes had been the most powerful Iranian tribe. But about 10 years before the events of chapter 6, the king of the Persians, Cyrus, rose up against the Medes and he defeated them. Cyrus then married the daughter of the king of the Medes and created a union between these two peoples, which the Persians were the overlord and the Medes were sort of a junior partner. And Cyrus's army, the Persian army with some Medes, came against Babylon in 539 BC, just like the writing on the wall said it would happen. But what happens next is very interesting. Cyrus the king conquers Babylon, and as now the commander of the most powerful army in the world, the leader of the most powerful empire in the world, he declines to take the title King of Babylon, though it was an ancient and prestigious title. He doesn't take this title for 14 months. What happened to this title, King of Babylon? Well, perhaps Cyrus deliberately let the title fall into disuse. But if that's the case, why did he start calling himself King of Babylon 14 months later? doesn't make much sense. But there is another explanation as to why Cyrus did not initially call himself the king of Babylon, because he gave that title to someone else. An ancient document called the Nabonidus Chronicle points us in just that direction. It tells us of a man named Gobaru, who was the general over the soldiers that took Babylon. And we read in the Nabonidus Chronicle that Cyrus gave Gobaru the power to install governors over what had been the kingdom of Babylon. Something we will see is true of Darius the Mede in Daniel chapter 6. Moreover, Gabaru died only 13 months after conquering Babylon. So he was likely advanced in age. Just what we see is true of Darius the Mede at the end of chapter 5. Moreover, history tells us that just six weeks after Gabaru died is when Cyrus began calling himself King of Babylon. And Gabaru's name and death date appear in a document in which everybody whose name practically was a king. And so based on all of this evidence, I would conclude that Gabaru was probably an old Mede general in Cyrus's army who was rewarded with this title, King of Babylon, after winning the war. And he chose the throne name Darius. The ancient kings and modern kings and popes often take a different name than their birth name. And so Darius is probably the assumed name of this figure but though he took this throne name, he didn't use it long. Again, I said he died within 13 months. 
And I think that's why this name doesn't appear in ancient documents that we have. But this man's given name, by which he became famous as a warrior, has been preserved. This conforms to what the book of Daniel says about Darius the Mede. Particularly in chapter 5, verse uh, 31, we're told that Darius received the kingdom. Note the passive voice. He received it from someone else. In chapter 9, we read that Darius, the, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Again, passive voice. He was made king. By whom? By Cyrus. So Darius the Mede is not a fictional character. He is the subordinate whom Cyrus put on the throne of Babylon after initially taking the city. The Bible accords with history. So, now that we know who Darius is, let's see what he does. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Darius sets up governors over Babylon, just like this Gubaru figure did. Verse 2. And over them he sat three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, so that to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Okay, a new regime has come to power, and this new regime needs to stay in power. And so officials are sent throughout what had been the Babylonian Empire to ensure that the tax money keeps coming in, and that there are no revolts. There may be new leaders on top, but Persia means to keep things running. And to ensure that things are done properly, these 120 officials are subordinate to three high officers. And lo and behold, who do we find among these high officers but Daniel? How does Daniel wind up in this post? Well, when the Persians took Babylon, what did they find? They found drunk Belshazzar, and they killed him. They also found Daniel, an 80-year-old man who had formerly been a close advisor of the great Nebuchadnezzar, who once had governed the province of Babylon, who the night before had demonstrated supernatural wisdom in front of the thousand most powerful people in the city, and who had been proclaimed co-king of the empire. Daniel was no danger to the Persians. As an old man and a foreigner, nobody's going to rally around Daniel as a figurehead for a rebellion. There's no downside to keeping Daniel around, but there's a lot of upside. Daniel would have a lot of knowledge and wisdom about how to run Babylon and how to keep things going. He's an ideal person for high office. And that's what Darius does. Verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. Daniel excels so much in his post that he gets the attention of King Darius. And Darius says, I'm going to promote you, Daniel, to an even higher office. You're not just going to be one of the three high officials. You're going to be over them. You're going to be number two in the whole kingdom, second only to the king. And why is Daniel going to get this promotion? Look at what the text says. Because an excellent spirit was in him. Now, we might hear this phrase and draw some wrong conclusions about what it means. This does not mean Daniel is a hard worker, he's a team player, he gets there early and he stays late, he's got a great spirit. That's not the idea at all. This comment is similar to how Daniel is described throughout chapters 4 and 5. Daniel had an authentic connection to the living God. The Holy Spirit dwelt in Daniel. That is the excellent spirit that is being discussed here. And what I want you to see is that the presence of the Holy Spirit in Daniel's life distinguished him. Chapters 4 and 5, the presence of the Holy Spirit distinguished Daniel from the Babylonian wise men, who were tricksters or had demonic power. In chapter 6, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit who now distinguishes Daniel from the other officials in the Persian court. Friends, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit 
should make a noticeable difference in your life. And if you have repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection, this same Holy Spirit dwells in you. And if he does, his presence should impact every area of your life. Your life should be different than the life you would live if you were an unbeliever. This is something I think a lot of American Christians really struggle with. We think about our faith as one part of our lives, right? I've got the work part of my life, and I've got the family part of my life, and I've got the free time part of my life, and over here somewhere I've got the faith part of my life. And we treat these like they are hermetically sealed and separate. And outside of the faith part, we sort of drift into living like unbelievers in the other areas of our lives. But our faith isn't just to be one part of our life. Our faith and the presence and the power of the Spirit should impact every area of our lives. You know, friends, the Christian spouse should look a lot different than the unbelieving spouse. The Christian's free time should look quite a bit different than the unbeliever's free time. There are certainly some things that unbelievers do that believers ought not do. And the Christian employer or employee should look a lot different than the unbelieving employer or employee. Remember, the Holy Spirit didn't just give Daniel insight into interpreting dreams and reading the writing on the wall. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit which distinguished Daniel as a governmental administrator. I say, well, how is that the case? How would the Holy Spirit impact Daniel at work? How would the Holy Spirit impact us at work? What does it mean for us to be distinctively Christian in our jobs as public servants or videographers or salespeople or graphic designers? How does my faith distinguish me from unbelievers in my profession? Because God's Spirit empowers God's people to obey God's word. And God's word has a lot to say about how God's people should work. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Hard work is a Christian virtue. At the office, the Christian must not be the sluggard. He should be the best, the most diligent, the most motivated worker. Why? Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. The believer should work like Jesus is our supervisor at the office, because he is, and he will give us a performance evaluation. We must work like Jesus is our boss. 1 Corinthians 10 and Colossians 3 urge us, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Work in a way that glorifies God. Reflect Jesus in your work ethic, in your water cooler conversations in how fair and honest you are with your bosses, your colleagues, and your customers. The Proverbs strongly warn against swindling anyone in the workplace. Proverbs 11.1 1 says a false balance. This is a tool that a shopkeeper would use to defraud his customers. The false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight. God hates when people act corruptly at work, but God delights when his people reflect integrity in our labor. I want to encourage you to think about this from some words that Paul said to Titus about how Titus should conduct himself as a minister of the gospel. Titus 2.7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's not just something the preacher should aspire to. This is a good outline for what God intends for our lives, believing friends. And for what the Holy Spirit has empowered us to do, to perform good works, to be marked by integrity and dignity, to use holy speech, to treat other people we encounter in a loving and godly way. 
and to live and work in such a way that no one should be able to lay a true charge against you. Now, of course, we all sin at times. But the overall pattern of our lives must be to reflect Christ and to be different than what the world is doing. And that includes at work. And friends, as we follow the Spirit in this, we will bear much fruit. Now, I'm not talking here about money or promotions or prestige. Those may come in this world. They may not. We'll see in one minute that working with this kind of integrity often leads to trouble, not advancement. But if you reflect the Lord while at work, you will bear a good testimony for him. You will be noticed by others for your diligence and your excellence. And you will have lots of opportunity to give Christ the credit. To allow other people to see the reality of Christ and how you conduct yourself. That's what Daniel did. The Holy Spirit was with him. And that same spirit is with us believing friends. And it got Daniel noticed. King Darius appreciated it. But other people responded differently. And that's what we see in our second point. Which is that the wicked enviously plot to destroy the righteous. Look at verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So Daniel's going to get this promotion and everyone around him gets really jealous. They want the office Daniel's going to get. And instead of reflecting on, why did the king pick Daniel instead of me? And what is it about Daniel that's different than me? Instead of thinking like that, these guys just say, we want Daniel gone. They're not interested in learning about his excellent spirit. They're not interested in improving the quality of the work. They want to get rid of the guy who's making them look bad. And so they conspire against Daniel. Where can we trip him up? What's his weakness? What are his flaws, they ask. But they discover a problem. Daniel has no apparent area of weakness. Now, this tells us how dutiful and loyal he was to the king, how personally holy he was in his life, uh, how excellent he was in his work. But think about this. It also tells us how kind and gracious Daniel was towards these very men who want to kill him. Because if he was abusing his power and being cruel to them, that would have been the ground of their complaint. But Daniel has reflected the Lord so well in his life and his work that his enemies can't find anything to charge him with. The only thing they can come up with is Daniel is a man of faith. What a testimony that is, huh? The thing his enemies most know about him is that he loves the Lord. And the conspirators decide that's their anger. Daniel's faithful to the king, but first and foremost, Daniel's faithful to his God. And so the, the conspirators say, if we can construct a scenario where Daniel has to choose between these two loyalties, they know he will choose his God, and they think they can use that to get the king to turn against him and destroy him. This is an evil plot. And now they put it into action. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O oh, King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. All right, so these guys come to the king and they lay their trap. And they say, O king, live forever. They come with pomp. 
Now, if we're right that Darius was Gavaru, this is an old man, an old soldier who was unaccustomed to the perks of royalty. He would have liked hearing this phrase, which he, I'm sure he had said so often to, to kings that had given him orders. The conspirators come not just with pomp, they come with lies. All the high officials agree with this plan. That's not true. Daniel's one of the high officials. He didn't sign off on this. All the officials of every kind agree with this. Really? These guys pulled everybody in the whole footprint of the Babylonian Empire? No, these guys are liars. But they know the king's going to trust what they say. They exploit the king's trust. They're liars. Moreover, they come with flattery. They appeal to the king's pride. For 30 days, nobody should petition any god or man but you, Darius. Now, in Persian religious thought, the king was not usually considered a god. But he was considered an intermediary between God and man. And that's the idea here. For a month, all the prayers have to run through Darius. And it's a very proud idea, isn't it? Because the New Testament tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Only Christ is glorious enough to stand between humanity and God. Only Christ is wise enough to properly present our requests to the Almighty. But that's the kind of role that these flattering men try to entice Darius into desire. So they come with pomp, they come with lies, they come with flattery, but they also come with murderous intent. It was customary for the kings of Persia to hunt lions for sport. And these lions had to be kept somewhere, usually in a stone pit. And that's what the conspirators have in mind for Daniel. They don't just want Daniel killed. They want him torn up and obliterated from the face of the earth. That's how much they hate him, eaten by lions. And so they say to the king, after flattering him, by the way, anybody who doesn't go along with this, let's feed him to your lions. And because he was distracted or deceived by his pride, Darius agrees to this. But the last thing I want you to see here is the conspirators come not just with murderous intent, they come with manipulative intent. They don't just want Darius to agree to this in passing. They want him to bindingly and irrevocably commit himself to this. They say, king, make this a royal decree. It was the legal custom of the, the Medes and the Persians that official royal decrees were irrevocable. We see this, if you're familiar with the Book of Esther, remember that's a big plot point in the Book of Esther. And if Darius is Gavaru, then here is a king who has not spent a long time dealing with the intricacies of the legal implications of royal decrees. This is a man who is ripe for manipulation, who can easily be trapped into doing something which later he is going to really regret. And that's the point. The conspirators want their plan not only agreed to, they want it irreversible. When they get Daniel in their sights, they want to make sure even the king can't get him out of that plot. And in this, the conspirators show their disloyalty to the king. They want what they want. They don't care what the king wants. What a contrast between these guys and Daniel. They are the opposite of Daniel in every way. They have a wicked spirit. They are disloyal to the crown. They are filled with every vice. What should we take from this? Friends, 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a promise. That is a law of nature in this fallen world. Godliness will invariably attract trouble from unbelievers. That cannot be avoided. Look at Daniel. Daniel was loyal. He was a good worker. He was fair and kind to the men conspiring against him. But all of these positive traits, including his kindness, didn't change the fact that the conspirators wanted him dead. Why? Because he was godly. Because we live in a fallen world. A world which is constantly advocating rebellion against God. 
Every culture in the world and every human institution promotes rebellion. Some cultures promote legalism. Our culture promotes licentiousness. Rebel in the sins of the flesh, it says. 1 John 2 talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Doing what feels good and what looks good and what makes us feel important. That is the world's programming. And, what, and the world is programmed to seek and destroy whatever is different. Whatever does not conform to this program. That's what Jesus said in his great prayer in the upper room. John 17. The world has hated them, believers, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Jesus was in the world. He was not of the world. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus came down from heaven, he says. He's without sin. He uh, is not part of this fallen world order. He was sent to glorify the Father and do the Father's work. He did not rebel in the values and attitudes and methods of this world. And so what did the world do to Jesus? They wanted to kill him. And friends, if we have come to Christ, we've received a transfer of citizenship. We used to believe it belonged to the, the fallen world, but no longer. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And now, like Daniel, we are exiles. Not because we've lost our home like Daniel did, but because our true home, the new Jerusalem, has not yet been revealed. We are like our spiritual father Abraham, who lived as an exile. Hebrews 11 tells us he was looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. Our true home isn't here yet. And so until we get there, while we are in this world, this is not truly our home, and therefore we are targets, especially when we resist conforming to the values, attitudes, and methods of this world. When we pursue godliness, when we make a, a point to obey God's word, when we live in such a way that openly glorifies Christ, friends, when you do that, expect trouble. Psalm 10 describes this vividly. The wicked make schemes against the righteous. Listen to Psalm 10. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. That's what the wicked did to the Lord Jesus. How often do we see in the Gospels Jesus' enemies plotting to kill him. So we see Daniel's enemies doing here. And this is what we should expect. Living for the Lord will lead to trouble. John 15, 20. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So the wicked plot against the righteous. It is inevitable. It is unavoidable. If you strive for holiness, this world will try to bring you down. Through temptation, through hostility, or maybe like Daniel, they'll try to use your faith against you. Maybe people will try to trap you at work and ask you to publicly comment on things that uh, the Bible speaks very differently about than the world. What do you think about abortion while your boss is standing there? You're, you're pro-LGBT, right? While the boss is standing there. They're going to get you fired. Maybe they're going to get you sued. Friends, these things happen. You need to know that they happen. And you need to be ready. And this leads to our third point, which is how should the righteous respond to the plots of the wicked? What does Daniel do after this decree is enacted? Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. 
Now note what Daniel does not do in the face of this decree. First, he does not conform. He does not give in to the world's demands. He doesn't stop praying. That would have kept him out of worldly trouble, but that would have violated the tenets of his faith. He is to pray. He is a believer in the living God. God calls on us to pray. And Daniel understood the truth that the apostles would later speak in Acts 5.29. It is better to obey God than man. He does not conform to what the culture demands. Second, Daniel does not compromise. He doesn't try to find a middle ground between the world's pressures and faithfulness. Oh, well, you know, I'll just pray less. Or I'll pray away from my window so no one knows I'm praying. No, he doesn't do that. Third, Daniel does not complain. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't sue everybody talking about how his rights have been violated. He doesn't wind up seeking attention on a nightly political program, whining about how shocked he is that the world persecuted a believer. So what does Daniel do? He keeps doing what he's been doing his whole life. He doesn't change his routine. He doesn't alter his spiritual disciplines. He just keeps praying. We're told that before this decree, Daniel prayed three times a day. He prayed on his knees, symbolizing humility. He prayed in front of a second floor window facing Jerusalem to the west. Because in 1 Kings 8, Solomon told the Israelites, at some point in the future when you get exiled, you are to pray, you are to confess your sin, and you are to do it facing Jerusalem. That's why Daniel faced Jerusalem, not because this was some superstition. He's obeying God's word. And God says, when you do this, I'll forgive you and I'll have compassion on you. That's what Daniel did before the decree. And that's what Daniel did after the decree. He just goes about his spiritual business ordinarily and quietly. One of the things that struck me about this passage this week is how little of this passage actually describes what Daniel does. We read that he had an excellent spirit, that after hearing the decree, he went and prayed. Later on, we read that he was spared and that he prospered. And that's about it. The vast majority of this text is about Darius and the conspirators. And it struck me there's a point to this. It's the evil who plot and scheme. It's the evil who have complicated lives. God calls his people to have a very straightforward and simple approach to life. We are to live by faith like Daniel did. We are to be people of prayer. We are to be people of humility. We are to be people who obey God's word. That should be our normal practice now. And that is the response that we are to have if persecution comes against us. If there are targeted attempts to bar us from practicing our faith, banning the Bible, or banning prayer, or shuttering churches because they want to shut down the gospel. When targeted opposition to the faith arises, we are to respond like Daniel. Not conforming, not compromising, and not complaining, but rather just being quietly diligent to continue to observe our faith. Trusting the Lord. That whatever happens to me, God's in control and he'll take care of me. That's what Daniel does, and how's it turn out? Well, that's what we see in our fourth and final point. The Lord delivers the persecuted righteous, and he destroys the persecuting wicked. Verse 11. Then these men, the conspirators, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Daniel's faithful regiment of prayer is apparently known to his enemies, and so they lie in wait for him. But they don't have to wait very long, because Daniel keeps on praying like he always has. Now, no, Daniel doesn't look for trouble. He doesn't decide he's going to do a protest in the middle of the street and sit down and pray in front of everybody. But neither does he back away from trouble. He keeps praying by his open window and let the chips fall where they may. He just sticks to his regimen of faithful obedience. And the conspirators see him pray and they think, ah, now we've got Daniel right where we want. Verse 12, then they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction 
that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. The conspirators spring their trap. They denounce Daniel, not just for his prayer life, but look how they insinuate his disloyalty by pointing out his ethnic background. He's a Jew, they said. Darius knew that, verse 16 tells us. Everybody in the Persian government knew that, based on how Daniel excellently and godly comported himself. But here we see these conspirators try once and for all to drive a wedge between King Darius and Daniel by saying he is disloyal. But the plan begins to backfire almost immediately, verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He doesn't hate Daniel now, he wants to rescue Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Darius is an unbeliever, but not every unbeliever is constantly ill-disposed towards God's people. Darius liked Daniel, he wanted to promote him. Darius certainly didn't realize this decree was a trap to murder Daniel. And now that he figures that out, he wants to help him. But again, Darius was likely new to the world of politics, and he's not able to figure out a way around this decree. Verse 15, then these men, the conspirators, came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. These conspirators show up and they say, Darius, you knock it off. This is a law, you're going to follow it. They succeeded in manipulating the king. Now, learn this lesson, friends. Vindictiveness is short-sighted. It's not smart to let an absolute monarch know that you have tricked and manipulated him into doing something he didn't want to do. But these conspirators are so set on seeing Daniel die, they're so vindictive, they're not thinking about their long-term interests. We'll see how that turns out for them in just a minute. But, verse 16, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. The king regretfully fulfills his decree. And Daniel, at about age 81, is cast into the lion's den. But as the sentence is executed, the king says he hopes the God to whom Daniel has been so faithful will deliver him from this gruesome death sentence. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Daniel is sealed into this dark, smelly pit with these growling, hungry lions. Now, it's interesting that this passage, which is known as Daniel in the lion's den, does not actually describe Daniel's experience in the lion's den. We can imagine that Daniel would have been afraid. Certainly, Daniel would have been praying. Perhaps singing as the Christian martyrs would later do when they were thrown to the lions. But despite the horrible circumstances, Daniel is firm in his faith. This is the final exam in a life of faith which has been produced by repeated testing, and we've seen that over the last six weeks. All of Daniel's experiences up to this point, all of the time that he has seen the Lord was real, have served to prepare Daniel for this final test, which comes on him when he's very old. And so Daniel that night held firmly in his faith in the midst of the lions. But Darius had a different sort of night. Verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fed, fled for him. Darius has a miserable night. 
sort of night you have when you know you've done something that you regret. He knows he's been tricked. He's frustrated because he couldn't reverse his decree. You better believe he's mad at those guys who manipulated him. And because his pride caused him to send this old, loyal advisor to be eaten by lions, he must feel terrible. It would be a long, bad night for Darius that would come by very slowly, indeed, waiting for daylight, waiting for the sun to peek across the horizon. But when it did, the king hurried off. Verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? He's anguished because he doesn't think so. He's not a believer. He says, I hope your God delivers you in through Daniel and the lion's den. But clearly he didn't expect that to be the case. He calls out in anguish, expecting no reply. But verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel has been gloriously delivered. In chapter 5, we saw that God evaluated Belshazzar, the blasphemous king, and God said, I find you wanting. Here God looks at faithful Daniel and finds him blameless. Not that Daniel was sinless, but Daniel was in the lion's den for no fault of his own. And so God casts his vote on Daniel's guilt or innocence in this matter by delivering Daniel. The lion's mouths are stopped, Daniel says, by an angel. Perhaps this is the angel of the Lord, a term often used to describe the pre-incarnate Christ, who had once delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire of the furnace. Now, in the same way, God has again acted, and he has delivered Daniel from the lion's den. And Daniel says to the king, God saved me, and king, I want you to know I have always been your loyal subject. And Darius knows that. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel spent the night in the midst of a bunch of hungry lions, and in the next morning he got to walk home with not even a scratch on him. God's vindication and deliverance here are absolute. Why? Daniel tells us. Because he trusted in his God. And God honored Daniel's faith with deliverance. Now let's talk about these verses. First, we need to know that God allows his people to experience trials and hardship. The prosperity gospel is false. We saw earlier that faithfulness leads not to the easy life of luxury, but to persecution and hardship. Jesus faced that, the apostles faced that, Daniel faced that, and friends, you and I will face that if we live for Christ. Christianity is not an escapist religion. We will face trials and we will have to endure them. But while we endure them, we do not endure them alone. Jesus promised in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus is with us. And as a result, we can withstand the evil day. Hebrews 13 says, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because Jesus is with us, we need not fear the hatred and opposition of persecuting people. As I look at Christians in this country over the last 10 years, I see that there has been a growing fear of persecution. And I understand that. Persecution is something we have little experience with in this country. And the prospect of suffering for our faith is scary. 
But friends, we don't need to fear. Persecution would be very hard. It would be very painful. But we don't have to fear because Jesus walks with his people through our hardship. He is not passive in our time of need. He is our strong helper. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is our mighty deliverer. Psalm 138 says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. In the midst of opposition and hardship, we can cry out to Jesus and receive comfort and strength and help. Now, usually when we pray in tough times, we ask God, please just take away my troubles. And it's right to ask that. But sometimes God doesn't just deliver us out of hardship. Rather, he steers us through it. He helps us endure it. Again, friends, Christianity is not escapism. And sometimes our suffering will seem to go on for a long time. But it won't last forever. Sometimes we get to enjoy deliverance in this life. Sometimes we receive deliverance after this life ends. But pain, suffering, and death never have the final word over the believer. Because if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, you will one day live in the new creation forever. In endless bliss and joy in the presence of the Savior. And so friends, in this world or the next, deliverance is coming. That's what the Apostle Paul says in the final words that he ever wrote. 2 Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And friends, that promise is true for us as well. But maybe you say, how do I know that God will really help me through the hardships that I face? How do I know God will help me when I face opposition in my family or at my workplace or whatever's going to happen in the political arena in the future? Well, look to Daniel's experience in this passage. Or look to another similar experience that happened many years later. When another servant of God faced lions. Psalm 22, speaking prophetically of Christ on the cross, sees the psalmist describe Jesus' tormentors as lions. They open their mouths wide at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Jesus faced the lions. But unlike Daniel, he did not survive that experience. But like Daniel, Jesus was sealed in a dark place. Not the lion's den, but a tomb. And like Daniel, that seal was open. And Jesus emerged alive again. Friends, God raised Jesus from the dead. And this same Jesus who has defeated death and whom God has highly exalted has promised to endlessly be with us and help us and work all things out for our good that he will bring us safely home to the new creation. And so, friends, if you despair in your trial, remember that God has delivered Jesus. And Jesus has promised to deliver us from the lion who seeks to devour us. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Friends, that's our real adversary. Not flesh and blood. Not unbelievers and haters. Believers are at war with the spiritual forces of wickedness. It is Satan who stands behind this fallen world system. It is Satan who is the architect of persecution. And 2 Thessalonians 3 says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Friends, Christ will deliver us. He will vindicate us. And he will give us victory and safely deliver us home in this life or in the next. And that's what happened to Daniel. And that's what we need to remember for every trial we face. Have faith, friends. Trust the Lord. But while God faithfully delivers his people, he also faithfully destroys those who persecute his people. Look at verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. 
And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The conspirators had plotted Daniel's death, but the Lord not only frustrated their plans, he turned the tables on them. And as Daniel walks away unscathed, his accusers and their families wind up being cast into the lion's den. Now, we might be appalled that the conspirators' families share their fate here, but this was a part of the Persian legal system. The worst criminals condemn not only themselves, but their entire families. And so these conspirators meet the gruesome end they intended for Daniel. And friends, this is a common way that God avenges evil in this world. He allows the wicked to be destroyed by their own schemes. Psalm 57, 6 says, They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Proverbs 11 says, The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. God will justly avenge his people in this world and in the next. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Friends, God fights for his own. He avenges his people. And those who seek to harm the people of God will be destroyed in this life and forevermore. But as Proverbs 28.10 says, Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. And while the conspirators indeed fell into their own pit, Daniel obtains a goodly inheritance. And we see that in the final verses of this chapter. Daniel teaches King Darius about the Lord. And Darius issues a decree that praises God, very similar to the decree that Nebuchadnezzar issued in chapter 4. We'll look at that decree in our conclusion in a second. But look at the last verse of the chapter. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel went to live out the rest of his life in peace. Over the last six weeks, we've seen the most important events in the life of Daniel, beginning when he was very young and ending here when he was very old. He went on to outlive King Darius. He lived until Cyrus took the title king of Babylon. And chapter 10 will tell us he lived at least three years into the reign of Cyrus. And then at some point, Daniel died and he went on to his eternal reward. But what a life he lived. A life that glorified God. A life marked by uncompromising faith and loyalty to the Lord. A model of living as an exile, as a stranger in a strange land. Friends, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live the same kind of life today. A life of integrity and faith in the midst of this evil world. All right, so let's conclude. And to conclude, I basically want to look at the decree of King Darius here because this sums up really the first six chapters of this book and shows us the two main points we all need to remember because we are also strangers in a strange land. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Friends, we need to remember that God is sovereign. The kingdom of man is not ultimate. It's easy for us to think that it is. It's easy to get swept up in news cycles and elections. But in the end, whether you call them Babylonians or Persians, Greeks or Romans, Republicans or Democrats, all of these politicians and people are simply moving on through. One group of evil people succeeds another. 
But in the end, the final kingdom belongs to the Lord. And he will reign in perfect righteousness forever and ever. And so as God's people, we need to primarily be concerned with the kingdom to which we truly belong, the kingdom in which is our real citizenship, the kingdom that will endure forever, not the kingdom which is passing away. But we also need to remember what we saw in the lion's den. That the presence of the Holy Spirit distinguishes the believing from the unbelieving. That the wicked enviously plot to destroy the righteous. That the righteous should respond to that scheming by just continuing to live lives of faithful obedience. And to trust the Lord to deliver us. And to trust that the Lord will settle his accounts with the wicked. So friends, fear not. As Paul said, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. But as we face those tribulations, we can remember the words of King David in 2 Samuel 22. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my savior and my refuge, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies.